Let us pray. Lord God, may your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And our brothers and sisters, as our our journey through the topic of biblical evangelism continues, we are now uh, looking into the Old Testament, and the main reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Listen now to the word of God. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, saying, Samuel. And Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. The sun bade farewell to the daylight hours, and the shadows of night came creeping in. Silence was the signal that the long night had begun. The last child had long since been tucked safely into bed, And hours had passed since the last flickering light succumbed to the darkness of the night. All was still across the land of the Hebrews. And out of the quiet darkness in the temple near the ark, young Samuel heard a clear voice calling him. Now it is interesting, Samuel had been doing the work of the Lord, He sounds like he was the equivalent of an acolyte. And yet, verse 7 says, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. I think, just as an aside, this is not the main point of my message, but just as an aside, it's very useful to remember those words. 
Because as important as church activity is, doing things in the church, it is possible to do those things. It is possible to be present in the church. It is possible even to help out with what goes on in the church and not yet know the Lord or the word of the Lord. And that was a situation with Samuel. Now, because of his lack of recognition, Samuel was quite confused. He heard a voice calling to him and he thought it was Eli. Reasonably enough, Eli was the only other person there. But as we know, the voice in the night was the voice of God calling Samuel to a new and glorious life. And indeed, Samuel would become one of the great prophets. In the darkness of night, God's voice may often speak to you. And certainly, if we look at it in a moral sense, in the darkness of the night of sin in which we find ourselves, God's voice speaks to you in this moment. Now, like Samuel, it's possible you may not know the Lord, but he speaks to you nonetheless, and that is true. God can speak to anybody he wants, and God can and does speak to those who do not yet know the Lord. And so what we are called to do is to listen to the voice of God as it beckons to us. Now, one way in which God speaks to us is through the voice of conscience. Now, consider, for example, the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. She was about to be stoned for her sin. Now, that begs the question, what about the man involved? You can't commit adultery by yourself. But nonetheless, due to the standards of the time and due to the standards in some of the uh, very backwards Islamic countries of the day, the woman was blamed. Now Jesus, in any case, challenged the accusers of this woman to cast a stone only if they were without sin. And so it seems that these men looked into their own hearts and they realized that none of them can rightly cast a stone. And they leave quietly. They drop the stones and leave quietly. You see, they were convicted and reprimanded by their own consciences. And apart from what the Bible says, and whatever words a sermon may contain, one voice that you cannot escape is the voice of your conscience. Now, one thing that the voice of conscience does is to condemn sin in your life. Think of the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son had disgraced his family. He had lost his wealth. He had wasted his best years. And so the voice that condemned him was not the voice of another person. It's not said that it was the voice of God. Instead, it was the voice of his own conscience. Now, there are at least three reasons why conscience can condemn us. First, it condemns because of the deeds that you or we have done. And the guilt feelings that follow the deed rob you of any real or abiding joy in the deed. Second, because as the prodigal knew, there is a much better way of living 
your conscience condemns you. In other words, you're choosing what is bad instead of what is good. And third, for the believer, you know that God is displeased with your actions. And so your conscience can condemn you on that point as well. And so the voice of conscience condemns, but it also, very importantly, brings contrition. Without contrition, condemnation would be destructive. And that is not God's intention. Instead, this condemnation from conscience is meant to produce a sorrow that leads to repentance. Matthew 26, 75, for example, when Peter realized that he had denied Jesus three times, just as Jesus had predicted, what did he do? He went out and wept bitterly. That was contrition. So why does conscience lead to contrition? And again, I would offer three reasons. Conscience leads to contrition because of the seriousness of sin, because of the one offended by sin, God, of course, and because of the shame produced by sin. All of those things drive us to contrition, to repentance. Now, one may attempt to run from God, as did Jonah. One may attempt to hide from God, as did Adam and Eve. And yet, it is impossible to escape God, or for that matter, to escape your conscience, getting back to the conscience. Everywhere a person goes, his conscience comes with him. Like a tin can tied to a dog's tail, it follows you no matter how fast you run. And ironically, if you run, it seems to make more noise. Your conscience is with you day and night. And your conscience calls you from the darkness of sin's night into the light of God's grace. And so that is the importance of the voice of conscience calling to you. But that's not the only voice calling to you. There's also another voice in the night, and that is the voice of influence. Now, what does that mean? The voice of influence may be disturbing. People might not want to hear this voice. People do not like to be reminded that they have an influence over others for which they are held accountable. But the voice of influence speaks to us whether we like it or not. You see, the voice of influence reminds us of our influence on others. Romans 14.7 says... For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. None of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. We are inextricably connected with one another. Now, there are two kinds of influence that we should consider. The first is conscious influence. Conscious influence is the kind that Andrew brought to bear on Peter when he led him to Jesus. And so you are aware when you choose to use this power that you have with other people. You can control it. You are aware of it and so on and so forth. But as important as that might be, that is actually not the greatest example of your influence. The greatest example is unconscious influence. Now, unconscious influence is the kind that Peter had on John at the open tomb of Jesus. What happened? Well, John had 
raced to the tomb just as Peter had, but John stopped at the outside. He paused. He didn't go in. Peter rushed in. And so he saw and he rejoiced and he believed. And he didn't, according to the text at least, he didn't beckon John. He didn't say, come on in and look at this. Without a word or gesture, he unconsciously influenced John to come in and see and believe. For the scripture simply says, the other disciples, the other disciple who reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. Quite possibly for every one person that you may influence deliberately or consciously, there are ten people that you may influence unconsciously. And so the question is, how does your everyday Christian witness influence those around you? And that can be conscious or unconscious. But again, how does your everyday Christian witness influence others around you? And again, it can be very unconscious. You are not aware that you're doing it. And yet the way in which you conduct yourself does influence other people. So the voice of influence is quite important, and it also doesn't just talk about how we can influence others, but it talks about our responsibility to others. Now, people, I don't think, have ever really liked to hear this truth. They've always tried to avoid the fact that they are responsible for others. And indeed, that goes all the way back, nearly to the very beginning. When Cain was asked by God where his brother was, Abel, Cain Metaphorically, or maybe literally shrugged his shoulders and said, Am I my brother's keeper? And the answer has resounded through the ages, Yes, you are your brother's keeper. And as we know, Cain was a pretty terrible brother's keeper because he killed his brother. He was responsible for what he did. And similarly, the voice of influence may be that of a young child in your home speaking of Jesus, the Bible, or the church. You see, Jesus reminds us of our responsibility. Luke 17.2 says, It is better for him that a millstone be hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. And so as adults, as parents, we have a great influence and responsibility over our children and other children as well, I think. Now, the voice of influence, rather annoyingly, reminds us of the penalty of failing to respond. And the penalty is twofold. First, there is the blood of others on your hands, very stark. Ezekiel 33, 6 says... But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So if we are not a good influence on others and in our Christian walk, that we do not influence others to come to Christ, or we drive them away somehow, then their blood is on our hands. 
And second, we have to consider our own death from sin, in sin, I should say. John 8.24 says, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That terrible, terrible condemnation. And so that is the voice of influence, often a warning voice. A voice that reminds us of our great responsibility. Now, we've considered the voice of conscience, and we've considered the voice of influence, and let us now consider the voice of wisdom. Wisdom declares that the wise thing, the only wise thing to do, is to accept Christ, and therefore not to run the risk of an eternity in hell. Jesus was a practical man. He presented this matter on the basis of a profit and loss set of columns. Mark 8.36 says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And so Christ is saying, essentially, in the profit column, place the whole world, and in the loss column, place your soul. You could never balance a set of books like that you would come out far in the red. So far in the red that you could never clamber your way back to black. You would be utterly bankrupt. And you see the voice of wisdom also talks about, describes the infinite worth of your soul. Christ says that there is nothing of sufficient value for which you should exchange your soul. Christ, God, prizes your soul above anything else. You know, the one thing that God considered worthy of the death of his son was the salvation of the souls of men. John 3.16, which we all know so well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now, as as people in our fallen state, if someone, well, the devil, were to come to us and offer us millions of dollars or more, maybe a billion dollars for our soul, we might be tempted. I mean, maybe we'd think, well, I don't know, does a soul even exist? But I know money exists. Wouldn't it be nice to have a hundred million or a billion dollars? But Christ warns us not to give up our souls for anything. You see, the word of God says that the money is worthless compared to the value of your soul. The value of your soul is of infinite worth, and you're not going to throw it away, hopefully, for anything in the world. The thing that we call a soul is really us. You know, we are, well, What are we really? It's been said that we act as if we are bodies and we may possess a soul, but in reality we are souls and we happen to possess a body. We are truly made in the image of God because we have souls, because souls are you, the you that loves, the you that hates, the you that fears, the you that thinks, the you that feels. 
This is the you that is independent of your body. Now, of course, you need the body to live on planet Earth, and we're also promised a glorious resurrection body at some point, and yet the soul is what is eternal in us. In other words, we may give up our earthly body, we'll get a wonderful resurrection body, but our soul is still our soul, and it is still us. And it is the soul that we need for eternal life. Now, the voice of wisdom points out the folly of spiritual death. I've been talking about how the soul leads us to eternal life, how we need the soul for eternal life, but there's also eternal death, the the terrible danger of that. God himself says, cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why? Will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. And that is from Ezekiel chapter 18. Turn, that's another word for repent. Turn, repent, and live. You see, the greatest act of folly that a person can commit is to die and to go to hell. It always astonishes me when people of no faith or confused faith will say, Oh, I'm, I'm ready to, I'm willing to go to hell. That's, that's fine. You know, I don't have to, I can believe what I want to believe. You see, they don't really mean it if they have the slightest idea about hell. And I'll actually be talking about that in the very near future. But in any case, it is a great folly to die and go to hell. There's no excuse for that because God has shown you the way of salvation. And I'm referring to you as those who at least claim to know the Lord Jesus Christ. God has shown you the cross. God has shown you the Bible. God has shown you the church. God has revealed the gospel preaching to you. God has put family and friends in your lives who follow Jesus Christ. There have been prayers offered on your behalf. You see, there are so many things that are pointing you in the direction of Jesus Christ. And so you actually have to do a fair amount of work in order to sidestep or avoid Jesus Christ. Now, you can do that. We know people do all the time. But what a foolish choice that is. And so the voice of wisdom, finally, the voice of wisdom recognizes the plight of your condition. Certainly to ignore a pressing need is never a mark of wisdom. We sometimes scold people who suspect, at least, that there's something very wrong with them physically, and yet they don't go to the doctor, and then it turns out that they are terminally ill, and it's too late to do them any good. Well, consider the spiritual reality of our lives. The reality is this. Without Christ, you are lost in your spiritual condition and you are condemned. As it is written in Romans 3.10, none is righteous. No, not one. And you do not need to wait until you've destroyed your life, until you're a broken person, until you've committed some spectacular sin like murder or arson or whatever. You don't have to wait until you're on your deathbed. The fact is, in your natural state, you are already condemned. 
And wisdom says that you should acknowledge that fact. A man awaiting execution on death row is not condemned when the poison starts to enter his body from the lethal injection. On the edge of death, then, he is. He is condemned already because he is on death row. Death only seals that condemnation. And so you could be sitting here, you could have another 50 years of life ahead of you. Actually, I don't think any of us do, but, well, Francis probably does. As for the rest of us, we're in trouble, but however long we have... Oh, I'm sorry, and of course... Never mind, a couple of you have some time, I guess. Uh, The rest of us, though. But however long we have, however long we have, we are condemned without Christ. Now, let us consider finally another voice, and that is the voice of God. The voice of God speaks to us more loudly and authoritatively and persuasively even than the voices that have been discussed, conscience and influence and wisdom. Revelation 22:17 says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires the water to take the water of life without price. Let him come. The voice of God speaks to your inability to justify yourself in his sight. Romans 3.20 For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And the works of the law could refer to literally some of the ritualistic works that the Jews did at the time to fulfill temple obligations. It could also refer to any works, good works included. You also cannot, of course, save yourself by your works. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says it pretty explicitly. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works. So that no one may boast. And the voice of God also tells of your accountability. Romans 14.12 says, So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. And we are certainly accountable for our deeds. Matthew 12.36 says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Now that's pretty heavy. Every careless word we speak. I wonder if people speak more careless words now than ever before because of the internet, frankly. It's so easy to leave flame-bait comments on the internet and not say it in person. And I, you know, this may be a reflection question for you, but ask yourself if you've ever done that. I'm not comfortable saying how often I've done it, but I'm getting better at it, so that's good. So we're responsible for that, but we're also held accountable for our rejection of Christ. Matthew 10.33 says, But whoever denies me before men, I also also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. 
So the voice of God does warn us, but the voice of God also consoles us. It is such a great consolation that the voice of God proclaims Christ's availability. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And so, brothers and sisters, each of the voices I have described calls you to leave the darkness of sin's night and to enter the light of God's salvation. In the words of Hebrews 7, 4, 7, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So, brothers and sisters, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And now may I invite you to please rise as you are able, and we will say together our Affirmation of Faith, the Apostles' Creed, found in the back of your bulletins. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, 